issue comes with the blue colored miners what will happen to them that is the issue there actually you see the just transition will have to happen in a phased progressive manner where we take care of their financial requirements as if they continue to remain in employment Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we look at how coal companies in India are confronting the energy transition as they seek to diversify into other technologies that are part of the electric power sector, such as solar or energy storage. We look at Coal India Limited. Coal India is the largest coal producer in the world and dominates the coal sector in India. How it manages the energy transition has major implications for India and the world. To help us understand what at stake, we're very pleased to have Partha Bhattacharya join the show. From 2006 to 2011, he was chairman of Coal India. He now serves on several executive boards and joins us today in his personal capacity. I'm also happy to welcome my colleague Sandeep Pai to the show for his first episode of Energy 360. Sandeep leads the energy program's work on just transitions. I'll turn it over to Sandeep now to host. Thank you so much for being here with us. I am really looking forward to this conversation. This topic is quite close to my heart and you're one of the best people to talk about this topic. So thank you so much and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me here. The subject is also quite close to my heart as well. But as I mentioned to you, you know, I'm a long retired person, retired more than 10 years ago. So whatever I say is basically my personal perspective about the issues and uh, they should not be construed as uh, anything that is the view of Coal India or the government. I mean. Absolutely. So let's get started. So, you know, CIL is the world's largest coal mining company. It is a highly profitable company. So I'm wondering why is Coal India now talking about diversifying its business? Right? Is it because of some international pressure or is it you know, growing fresh anti-coal sentiment within India or what or what is the reason? What are what are some of the reasons? Thanks for that question. Coal India certainly is uh, financially quite strong and its fundamentals are quite strong, no doubt about it. But it is facing some severe challenges. Over the last six years, its major challenge has been the growth of the emergence of the renewables, as you may call it. The renewables today is a reality. It's already, it has grown at a brick, uh, sort of a breakneck speed and it's now at 90 gigawatts, planning to become 450 gigawatt in nine, nine years time from now. So that's definitely hitting coal India in terms of, or rather hitting coal-based power demand in terms of the incremental demand. The incremental demand from year to year, which actually means growth for coal India, that is now taken away by renewables. If you see the reflection of that over the last three years, Coal India has not been growing, both in production and offtake, it's, it's flat. And yet, it is sitting on a huge coal reserves, coal stock. There is stock at the powerhouse end, there is stock at Coal India's end, and it doesn't really require to produce the kind of uh, targeted production that it has. Every year it is missing the target by a very substantial quantity of 50-60 million tons, yet nothing, no chaos, nothing happens. That, that wasn't the situation earlier. See, five, six years back, whatever it produced, it could sell. Today, that is not the case. Suddenly, the demand has become muted. That's because the incremental power requirement is being met from the influx of solar. And you see, here there are certain issues. Like, for example, solar has some, or rather the renewables have some basic protection or benefits. It's a must-use kind of thing. You know, there is a priority in terms of offtake. There is a clear subsidization. There is a capital subsidy. There is a sort of accelerated depreciation, these kind of things are there. 
And on the other hand, for coal, you have the rivers. You have a GST compensation cess which is levied on coal. That's about 400 rupees, which is translates to about 25 paise in terms of tariff. It has to bear one of the highest freight rates, railway freight rates in the world. If you translate Indian freight rates in purchasing power parity terms, it is the highest in the world uh, in terms of rupees per ton kilometer or whatever it is because of cross subsidization of passenger fare by coal freight. So that is another issue. And uh, there is also the issue of very high rates of royalty and cess. I mean, India is one of the highly taxed countries. So it's absolutely cornered, I would say. I mean, it is stifling. So given this kind of a situation, I believe Coal India has to look at three clear strategies. First strategy should be to consolidate itself, you know, basically a control on expenses, control on manpower, rather manpower reduction, some aggressive manpower reduction measures this is one part. Second, which I don't think it has started thinking as it in that direction, improve the quality of its product to a level, to some sort of an international level, where it can, it can look at completely different markets, like for example, export market. Still today, 600, 700 million tons of coal are traded. So why can't Coal India think in terms of getting into that? It has not thought so far because the country's demand was huge. But if the demand is not going to be there, then it should start thinking in that line. But that will require a very serious effort in quality improvement. The kind of coal that we produce, that is not traded. What is traded is a very different kind of quality. So quality improvement to create new markets, to diversify into new markets. That should be the second. And third, of course, is diversification into completely new areas of business. To the extent possible, with a certain amount of synergy with its business to try to leverage its core competence and things like that. I mean, that would be the basic reason. I don't think international pressure as yet is a very strong thing or rather anti-coal lobby is something very, very important for India because India has to depend on coal. India and China, it is on, the, on a different footing altogether as far as coal is concerned. So it has to still continue to depend on coal for a few decades. So those may not be the reason. But gradually, it has to face a situation where coal is going to face headwinds, all kinds of headwinds, it's already facing. And it has to prepare itself for that. That could be the imperative. I want to explore your third point forward and sort of think about Coal India's diversification prospects. So recently, I've seen lots of news reports that indicate that Coal India has formed two subsidiaries and, you know, trying to diversify into solar wafer manufacturing, aluminium and solar production and so on. So I'm wondering that are these the right sectors for a company like CIL? Should it not be trying into other mining sectors or what are your thoughts on that? Well, you see, now it's a coal miner, one of the world's largest coal miner. It can definitely think of uh, leveraging its mining capabilities into mining of iron ore or limestone or other things. But these are not big ticket items, at least in India, you know, coal is a, is a big thing. And... Um, you have good players in that in the other domains. I mean, there, there are quite a few players, and uh, those are those have their own challenges. I don't think Coal India will try to venture in that. Rather, I would say solar is a, is is one of the probables because solar is a field where people who have diversified into solar they didn't have a prior experience of solar. I mean, solar is a new thing. So anything that is new, where competence and capability can always be built in or rather bought in, you know, or created, that is a good sector for Coal India to be in. Not very confident about creating inputs for solar, like solar wafers, for example. There's basically inputs for solar power. Now, that doesn't 
seem to fit in very much. I mean, in my uh, opinion, because Coal India, for example, has been a great buyer of mining equipment, but did it diversify into mining equipment manufacturing? It didn't. So it, it's something like that. Rather go into solar with sort of joint ventures with good electricity companies like NTPC, NLC, and others, and create massive solar power capacity. That is perfect. But uh, this solar wafer, I I think they must have thought through. But apparently, I feel that it is basically an input for solar industry. So that is not the area really of direct core competence. Aluminium smelting is definitely a great idea because you see, if one can get a bauxite resource adjacent to a coal resource and set up an aluminium power plant, first of all, and power is the raw material for aluminium, aluminium is the metal of the future, then you are actually moving into long-term sustainable high-value business and you can associate there are good power companies with whom coal India can form a JV for converting coal into power. It has its own expertise in coal mining, convert coal into power and the, another aluminium company to partner for setting up an aluminium facility. So that I think is something which it can definitely look at very closely and it, it's big value, high ticket business. Makes sense. A quick follow up to that. What would be other sectors that you think Coal India could get into given its core competence? Well, Coal India, to my mind, you know, it has still some scope of, as I said, diversifying into not companies, not into different businesses, but into different markets. Because I basically feel, that, you see, for example, we are talking about 100 million tons of coal to be gasified, but that is not uh, the high ash coal that we produce. Normally, lower the ash, the better is the possibility of gasification. Of course, there are technologies which can gasify even high ash coal. Chinese technologies are there. But broadly speaking, gasification requires ash to be in a range of not more than 25 to 30%. So that is one market waiting for coal India. Another market is the import of coal. So imported coal are generally of low ash. So coal India can grab that market provided it can produce low ash coal. Coal India can further diversify into the export market if it can produce tradable coal. So all this will require a huge thrust on quality. You know, everything that requires to be done to improve quality if Coal India pursues that, I mean, right from uh, setting up crushers, uh, coal handling plants, large-scale washeries, I mean, absolutely top-class top washer, washeries are, could be built in and gives a lot of thrust and quality, which is quite close to its core area of competence. I mean, a coal miner, you know, if it is not given a lot of thrust and quality, that's because consumer didn't demand it. But today, if a new set of consumers start demanding it, I mean, Colony can easily get into that and that can give it a market of another 300 million tons. You know, so I think that is one area it should definitely look at very seriously in addition to the, the solars and uh, the aluminium and things like that. It's already into coal gasification. There is a, the, you, you are aware of that HURL company has been formed with RCF and uh, Gale and others, you know, a joint venture company that they're trying to revive the Talcher fertilizer plant make it coal-based. And coal gasification is a new chapter in, uh, in totally. I mean, you create, uh, produce syngas and use the syngas to do ammonia, to do methanol, to do uh, even steel through the DRI route. All these possibilities open up once you gasify coal. But the prepare the coal for gasification. That itself is a process where coal India can do a lot of, focus a lot. In fact, very recently, uh, it will be an interesting thing to tell that there was a gasification webinar where most of the players they were expecting coal to be priceless 
a cheaper price for coal. So the point is, you see, if there is an arm's length distance between the coal supplier and the gasifier, you can't expect anything cheap. A business is viable provided if it is if its end products are market determined price are selling at market determined prices, it should be able to pay for the inputs also at market determined prices. If it can't, then the business is not essentially viable. I think the fear is that if we can get coal cheap, then the viability will be assured. That could be the fear. But basically, you should not be going, going to a business where you cannot pay for the inputs at market-related prices after selling outputs at market-related prices. So now if they are demanding coal at cheaper prices, Coal India can go into a sort of a contract saying that, okay, here we are in a position to give you coal at some reasonable price. For example, the price at which Coal India sells coal to power sector, which is a little subsidized price, not the auction price, not the non-power sector price. But in lieu of that, in lieu of the hit that we take, you give us equity at an agreed valuation. Some amount of equity in the business comes in. So automatically with supply of coal to the gasifier, Coal India diversifies. These are the kind of ideas that can be thought about. So automatic diversification will take place by Coal India offering its own product. It's basically, it has a core area of competence in mining and delivering coal. So it should use that capability to its maximum for diversification purposes. That, that's my broad thought. Fantastic. And that is really a good point for my next question. You know, Coal India has gone through a massive transformation in the past, right? It was one of those like loss-making, state-owned public sector companies. And in your tenure and, you know, post your tenure now, Coal India is registering high profits. Um, and so you have seen Coal India transform from this loss-making to a highly profitable company. I'm wondering what are like the organizational strengths of Coal India that will help it diversify further and make this new transformation going forward? Well, I'm, I'm so happy that you asked this question because this is, this is one of my favorite questions, I would say. You see, the point, what I have witnessed living with this company, breathing in this company, is it has a very unique kind of a DNA. You know, in a normal circumstance, okay, business as usual, you know, it's happening, okay, fine. But if it faces a crisis, at those points, whenever a crisis has come, it has done its best. It has come out, it, the best of Coal India will come only when it, it is being pushed to a crisis. That I have seen in 1991. That I have seen in BCCL in 2003, 4, 5. I mean, all these years. I mean, those are, I mean, I don't want to, you will have to have a five-hour webcast in order to <laughs> podcast to deal with that. But essentially, the thing is that it, it really comes out. And the best part of it is, it is something like, you know, the foreign aggression to a country. Everybody gets fairly attuned. We may have so many differences. Every stakeholder is a large company. Every stakeholder has its own point of view. Point, there are differences. The, the officers are uh, thinking about something. The trade unions, the workers, and so many trade unions are there. Even the government can think of, of something else. But all thoughts try to converge when we face a crisis. This is what I have actually witnessed. In fact, in some cases, I was not in the driver's seat. I was definitely was closely associated, but my seniors were the, in the driver's seat. They did it very well during the 90s, uh, during the time when we, you know, when we could uh, get into a World Bank financing of, a, of a large projects, when they did the capital restructuring. And we completely changed the face of the company. And that is when the, the point of turnaround started. And then later, 
in BCCL particularly, a very hopeless kind of a situation, how we dealt with it. We introduced the auction of coal. There was a huge resistance. The entire, entire lobby of customers, I mean, those are all bogus customers mostly. They were after us, but court cases and everything. But we won. Ultimately, we came out victorious. So this is basically innate strength that is not apparent all the time. That becomes apparent whenever you hit a crisis. And I have so much of confidence on the basic DNA of the company, you know, it will be able to withstand all kind of critical situations. That's my firm belief, I would say. Right. And I just wanted to give a background to our audience that uh, BCCL is where, you know, it's it's in the Dhanbad Rani Ganj belt, which is notoriously famous for coal mafias and, uh, you know, like illegal coal mining and so on. And, and so transforming that company in that area is really a big deal in, in that sense. But that's great. Let's move to some of the challenges. Of course, the DNA is, you know, Coal India comes together to fight any challenge. But what do you think would be some of the key challenges for Coal India going forward, uh, you know, both to diversify to different sectors, but also to, you know, make its coal business more profitable and sort of start eventually think about exporting coal. So if you can distinguish that between social, political, financial, or any other kind of challenge, that would be great. Yeah. You see, I would say that basically the challenge would be to bring all stakeholders on board. If you are evolving a strategy for diversification, for you know taking the company on a long-term sustainable growth path, you need to have the stakeholders on board. And which are the main stakeholders? First, of course, is the employees. You know, you have to have the employees with you. In employees, you have two sections. One is the executive manpower. They are fairly easier to handle because if they, they keep a trap of what is happening, what are the thought processes, they they, they know. So getting them along is one of the easier problems. You need to do a couple of town halls in every company and, you know, you can get them on board. More difficult is the large number of workmen and employees. They are blue-colored people, but they are well represented by the trade unions. See, I would say that the trade unions are definitely strong. I mean, they will not accept you on your face value, but they are also matured. I mean, they have also lived with the company for 40, 50 years, so they, they have matured. So they understand how to differentiate between a real crisis and a crisis that the management wants to just, you know, make them believe. So they know how to differentiate. And if it is a real crisis, they will stand by you. The good part of it is these unions all come from, are actually affiliated to various political parties, including the ruling party. The ruling party will have an affiliate trade union. The opposition will have an affiliate trade union. So once the trade unions are on board, all political parties are on board. And that includes the ruling party. So if that is on board, automatically you can see government is on board. And we have seen this happen when the IPO was done or when this commercial mining has been done. I, I'm quite sure the present government will also must have experienced the same thing at the time of commercial mining. I experienced it very much and then the government at that time experienced very much when, when the IPO was done. You see, everybody was opposed to. Initially, there was a huge opposition to IPO because it was considered to be some sort of a disinvestment or privatization, you know, that kind of thing. But they all got together. They all, they all understood. So basically, this, on the social and uh, organizational side, these various groups, stakeholder groups, have an interrelation. So if you can handle one, you may be able to handle the others little easily. So officers is first, the executives, then the trade unions. Once you get the trade unions on board, but they will get on board, uh, you'll require a real solid convincing. 
the first thing that the most important thing is the management when they talk about the whole thing they must have complete conviction in what they are talking it is basically the conviction that gets transferred then only they come on board i'll give you a small example if it's okay with the time partner so in bccl for example bccl the biggest problem that i was finding is they were only paying at the end of the month the net salary to due to the workmen at some point of time in the month with all huge delays the salary which was to be paid on the first or the second was paid on the 28th or 29th but they were not doing any other expenses no buying of uh, production holding or safety items even the provident fund dues were not parked with the pf authorities so in front of the first meetings i had to tell them that well this kind of prioritization don't work you have to give priority to safety and production holding items and salary will become the third priority see the unions were in a state of shock and i was also told that if you say this i mean you don't know what can happen to you but they said that what is your second priority somebody immediately said i said the second priority is giving the provident fund dues of last month to the pf authorities unless that is paid i am not going to release the salary for this month yeah you have to accept it let the work workers protect their future and suffer the present it should not be the other way around something clicked they agreed and that was a, that was one of the crucial points of bccl's transformation story so it's like that so once you can convince or rather you can express your point with a lot of conviction it registers that that's one of the good things so it becomes to that extent easier to get stakeholders on board but getting stakeholders on on board is the basic challenge otherwise rest will all fall through rest you have you have the wherewithals to do that is yes, finance is one institutional finance or banks etc but given cold india's current strength of balance sheet etc that's not a big problem it's a triple a rated company in any case so i don't see that as a problem and you know the international resistance to financing coal projects etc that is not going to impact india too much because india has its own nationalized banks sbi and others you know so they will be with us they will be with the company i'm quite sure and diversification in any case is diversifying away from coal in in some cases so that should not have any financing issues too much so that's a really good point to think about like the future and you know we talked you talked about unions and workers and so on so i'm wondering and many many experts in india are now saying that the success of coal india's diversification is really crucial for ensuring just transition for you know workers and communities it's because coal india has such a large footprint you know it operates in seven eight states and you know it has a really what my friend rohit chandra says social contract with these communities and so on and so uh, so i'm i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the just transition aspect of this coal india diversification absolutely Yeah, absolutely you see let's look at it in two parts first is we are talking about basically the employees of coal india how they view it and how how it is going to impact them if you look at it that way there is a group of professionals basically mining engineers other engineers uh, finance hr and all that now they can fit in everywhere so diversification doesn't take away the job from them they may be put into another job and that may require some amount of retraining or reorientation which they should be easily capable of doing it so we have not much of worry with the 20000 odd officers and also some of the skilled work skilled workmen will find job everywhere so that is not a big problem the issue comes with the blue colored miners 
who actually have taken mining to heart. I mean, they don't, they only know mining. What will happen to them? That is the issue. There actually, you see, the just transition will have to happen in a phased, progressive manner where we take care of their financial requirements as if they continue to remain in employment. If we can do that, if we can uh, make it smoother, then you can, and there is a possibility. I can take you through that possibility, you know, how can how we can do it in a manner where the whole impact will become spread, off, spread out over a longer period of time. And uh, you can give them a much better deal. It's possible, but they have to be dealt with. Certainly, they have to be dealt with. The executives and skilled component, they don't have to be dealt with. They will automatically get into the new system, new diversified businesses all through. You see, basically, we it's a very interesting constitutional structure that Cool India has, you know. It has, when you go into the, into the mines, it has, uh, let us say, something like 150 open cast mines, okay? Or rather, 170 open cast mines, of which 17 or 18 are larger than 10 million tons each. Very big mines. And the share of production of those mines is 60% of the total open cast production, okay? There are three mines which are more than 40 million tons, as big as that. So that is one part, highly mechanized open cast mines. And that is actually yielding all the profits. It has not more than 40% of total workforce, of the total workforce. So that is one part. There is another part, which is the highly loss-making underground mines in the old coal fields, like Raniganj, Charia, or, you know, Ramgar, Gurkunda, you know, the Jharkhand areas, and then some in southeastern coal fields in western coal fields, the old mines. So these mines are roughly 200. I mean, plus minus here and there. And they constitute about 45% of the total mine. But they produce only 6% of total coal. So that 6% is about 30 million tons. That can be taken care of by one large open cast mine. So you don't need to really run all these mines. You are running this only because you don't know what to do with the workforce. And this leaves the company with a very significant loss very very huge loss they incur every year so if you phase these mines out over a period of time you will be eventually saving those losses which will lead to financial consolidation of the company now all that is fine but how to take care of the workmen even if you allow the workmen to part relationship with the company but continue to get the net salary till their notional date of retirement which is 60 years you don't lose you can make them sit in their homes and pay only thing is, when you are closing these mines, you will require some people for organized closure. Once you close, you have to properly restore, reclaim, get back the land, you know. And then a lot of land will become useful for alternative purposes. You can create local solar power stations, I mean the solar power in small scale, not big scale, because these are all remote areas. There's not a big market unless you can put it into the grid or something like that. You can explore those possibilities. You can put some you know, environmentally benign kind of industries. If not anything, you can go for intensive afforestation. All kinds of possibilities become open. And to make that happen after closure, you will require to deploy some part of those manpower for those jobs. So there will be some employment left. And rest you can ask them to be at home and get the salary. There's, there's no problem. So if you do that, you will be eventually in 10 years time, you're reducing your losses by that huge amount. It is very, very staggering. I don't want to state the numbers and create confusion, but very staggering losses that can be avoided. And so company consolidates the financial position. The problem is taken care of much before the peaking of coal production happens. Coal production is yet to peak. It's maybe a decade and a decade and a half away. But even before that, you will start thinking about 
just transitioned at that point in time. Instead, if you think now, you have reduced the problem to a very large extent. So at that point of time, you will be left with the problem of gradually phasing out the mines which are operating, open cast mines, not with much manpower. So, you know, the life will become much more easier. Coal India has taken a program of phasing out unviable mines, maybe something like 2025 mines this year or next year and things like that. So they are also thinking in that particular direction. But only important point is once you close, you should not go allow that area to go away because that is going to be your raw material or input for diversification. You can think of a lot of diversifications in that area. You can also enable the country to pursue uh, its goals on climate change. You create large forests means you are creating sinks, sinks for carbon dioxide. You know, so that's how one should look at it. That's fantastic, and you really nicely laid out how uh, you know the process has to start from now rather than, you know, 10 years later when the coal will actually peak. Uh, so I have one last question, which is about, can you speak to how this strategy or any other strategy could benefit not just coal workers, not just CIL workers, but also the local communities? Because Coal India invests in, you know, CSR and Coal India pays taxes at local level. So, I mean, any diversification that results from what you just said, Will it benefit the local community as well? And to what degree? You see, I would say that people who are connected with coal mining, but not as employees, as you know, providers of services or uh, goods and services, ancillaries and things like that. Well, if you close down mines, you'll have to consider alternative engagement for them. But that will be not exactly fully Coal India's problem. It will have to be done jointly with the with the government and there is a lot of money that Coal India annually has to pay uh, for the government to handle these kind of things but that is normally it goes into a part of the exchequer or part of the government's budget government may have to dish out a part of that into the welfare of these people I and mean, how to really reorient them but these mines in any case are going to be closed only question is they are going they are today getting closed by default there is a problem somewhere, there is a safety issue, the mine gets closed. Instead of that, I am talking about closure by design. You plan closure. So, is as part of the plan, as we are taking care of the employees, by saying that employees should get their net salary, even living at their own homes without coming to for job, you have to devise something for the people who are dependent on coal mining. But that is not entirely Coal India's business. That, that is basically a thing that has to be done together with the district administration and others. So they have to be reoriented. And I don't have a ready answer for that today. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you once again. Thanks to Sandeep for leading today's discussion and for Parta for joining us. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 on our website, CSIS.org, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening.